The New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again, everyone. Um, I was just informed by uh, one of the musicians who will rename, remain nameless that I am currently wearing a Texas tuxedo. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, it's not done intentionally or ironically. Uh, so if you're from Texas, don't be offended. Uh, but apparently blue shirts and blue jeans that are what you, you know, those are your Sunday clothes in Texas, I, I reckon. I'm not sure. Uh, we are doing a sermon series entitled Punk God, and part of it is because of selfish reasons, because it gives me a vocational reason to listen to the music that I already listen to. So if you walk downstairs by my door during the week, it's like you're likely to hear some of the music that we are uh, quoting, the lyrics of these songs. Um, but also, I think because when I listen to um, punk music, I hear the protest of Jesus uh, against the way things are, against the injustice of our world, towards a, a spiritually deadened world. And that's one of the reasons that I've chosen to do this series, but also because this againstness of posture is a very Portland type of posture. And I think it resonates because some of the things that punk music is identifying and seeing and helping us to see, uh, Portland as a city is seeing as well. And so I think it syncs up well with where we live, um, where place we inhabit and attempt to live out uh, the Christian faith. We're looking this morning at uh, a song called TV Party from the seminal L.A. punk band Black Flag, and it's printed in the front of your bulletin, and I'll refer to it in just a moment. But let's pray as we get started. Father, I pray you would lead us, that you would open our minds to follow the truth wherever it may lead. I pray that that 
if that means us changing our assumptions about what the Christian faith is, uh, if we're looking in from the outside, I pray that you would allow us to go there and adjust and to critique our critiques. Lord, I pray that if we are here each and every Sunday, this is our life, that we too would be open to seeing your gospel, seeing the mission of the church, seeing what it means to be a Christian in a different light, and that we would be pushed to the edges of our comfort zone, that we would be willing to investigate ways that we could orient our lives that would be more faithful to you and more helpful to your world. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite uh, books that I read this uh, summer is Neil Stevenson's sci-fi techno-thriller, Cryptonomicon. And I usually try to have a goal of the number of books that I want to read in a given year, and so sometimes I am reluctant to choose really long books, and this one is 1,150 pages. And so it took a while, but it was, it was well, well worth it, worth it. And it takes place at the advent of the Internet revolution, so sort of 99-2000. And one of the recurring motifs in this book is about location. How do we know where we are in a world of hyper-paced globalization? And the main character is uh, an IT guy. His name is Randy. And he distinguishes between his cyberspace uh, coordinates, that is where he is in the digital world, which is everywhere all the time. He distinguishes from his cyberspace coordinates, coordinates and what he calls his meat space coordinates. And I kind of laughed at this. I hadn't heard that term before. Apparently, it's very, uh, fairly common in this sci-fi world. But listen as I read how he talks about this very important consequential meeting, this corporate meeting for his company, and listen for this implied anthropology. He says, the room contains a few dozen human bodies, each one a pressurized sack of guts and fluids. Each one is built around an armature of 206 bones connected by fault-prone joints that are given to creaking, grinding, and popping noises when they are in anything other than pristine condition. This structure is draped with throbbing stake, inflated with clenching air sacs, and pierced by a Gordian sewer filled with burbling acid and compressed gas. Gamey nuggets of genetically programmed meat strung along its length. Slugs of dissolving food are forced down this sloppy labyrinth by serialized convulsions decaying into gas liquid gas, liquid, and solid matter, which must all be regularly vented, lest the owner go toxic and drop dead. It goes on and on like that for a few pages, thus the length of the book. Um, But did you hear how he thinks about his location and his being? His coordinates are given in meat space, and that's how he signs off each and every email, his coordinates in the meat space world that he sees himself as a bag of meat. Well, this book is considered cyberpunk, but that's not why we're using it. It's not the connection. 
Punk as a genre has been criticized for being all critique. It's all deconstruction. Ryan Moore, who is a scholar and also a fan of punk music, says that punk lacks a utopian vision which looks to the way society could and should be organized as a point of departure for its criticism of the alienation and dehumanization inflicted in late capitalist society. So he's saying basically that punk is all demolition and not construction, that there's no overriding foundational theology, uh, teleology about where the world is going and should be going. But is that essential? Does that undermine punk's message? Can't they say that, hey man, that's not our gig, that's not what we are about? We're into demo, we're not really interested in construction. Well, Black Flag is a band that takes demo, takes deconstruction very, very seriously. And their song, TV Party, they have their sights set on the role that entertainment plays in sort of deadening our senses and our vision and reducing us as human persons. We see this reductive anthropology as people gather around a specific device that in the late 70s when this song was written had just began to be a required appliance in the home. He says, we're going to have a TV party tonight. Everyone's going to hang out here tonight. We'll pass out on the couch. All right. We've got nothing better to do than watch TV and have a few brews. And this is a, a false brag about a false transcendence, that in the late 70s, living rooms, that is, the places in our houses that are meant for relationship and community and family, now have had their sofas turned from facing each other to facing toward a screen. Now, this is not a a preacher's rant against TV. I watch a lot of TV, if you know me. And in the extraordinary renaissance of TV that we've seen, especially in these prestige shows, there's a lot that we can learn. There's a lot that they help us keep attuned to, and they help us in many ways stay alive. And so this really isn't about TV itself, nor is Black Flag's rant about the device that we use for entertainment. But I think it's about the entertainment culture itself that can undermine our human identity and our ability for critical thought, that this device allows us somehow for the first time then to ritualize our lostness, that the TV in many ways serves as sort of a a sacrament of nihilism, of purposelessness, and it presumes a life that is devoid of purpose so that we medicate our discontent. We medicate our lostness with lowbrow network TV. But I guess the question is, is this still on? Seems like it went out. Yes, it is on? Okay, thank you. The question, I think, is why would bags of meat care? If our main location in the world is meat space, why would we care? 
Why would we concern ourselves with a teleology? Why would we worry about our meat space coordinates being in front of a TV rather than being mesmerized by the Sistine Chapel or transfixed at the birth of a child and think there's something here, there's something ineffable in this moment, or mesmerized as I was a few weeks ago by the thousands of birds, swifts, that on this many thousand mile journey come back each and every year and make their home in this chimney and watching them swirl and to think there's something here that is not just meat space. Or maybe in a gathered spiritual community that is asking big questions about life and saying, is there meaning in this world and can I find God? And I think what punk helps us to do and why we're doing this series is that it helps us resist being inoculated to our human desire for more. It helps us resist being inoculated to seeking the ineffable, to use Rabbi Heschel's word. The Apostle Paul, in this passage, he wants us to have more. He wants us to want more. He wants us to know why our discontent can feel so ultimate at times and to know what we're looking for when we look for beauty, when we look for meaning, when we look for transcendence. Why do bags of meat constantly look for transcendence? Why do we honor beauty? Why do we pursue it? And what Paul tells us, what the Bible tells us, is that not only that something more ultimate is out there, but that the transcendent can be known personally, that we are more than bags of meat, that we're more than our rage, we're more than our discontentment. In fact, we were made, we were created, and created for more than just TV, more than just entertainment and diversion. diversion. And Paul starts where Black Flag starts and where some of our greatest artists start. And he starts with the disrepair of the human condition, the disrepair of the world. And it's so visceral to him that he uses the imagery of creation itself groaning for liberation as if the trees are looking around at the world and saying, please don't forget. Please remember that there is something more, that there will be something more. That's how visceral it feels to Paul, and that's how viscerally he wants us to feel about it. Black Flag is facing up to the fact that we live in in a world that is in bondage to decay, And that the easiest thing to do would be to simply give in, to simply distract ourselves with more and more entertainment. Paul says in verse 23 that it's not just, however, the inanimate world, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. 
We inhabit, in other words, an atrophied world. And that we ourselves are spiritually and physically atrophied. And this idea of atrophy or this idea of redemption, it implies that there is some strength, some capacity that we used to have that we don't have. This possession has been lost. Something critical to our humanity has been lost. But what it also says is that we retain a muscle memory of sorts. We retain an instinct because we still long for meaning. We still long for a life of purpose that transcends distraction and transcends diversion because there is something more to us, more than meat and DNA and synapses in the brain. There's a soul. There's a life that is meant to be lived before God and in relationship with Him. We are not just our bodies. We are not just bags of meat, but we are souls that are longing for home, longing to be delivered from the dislocation that we feel. And that happens how? Briefly, he tells us really quickly, it happens through adoption to sonship. And I want to retain the gendered pronoun here because it's important in this particular context because in Paul's day, only sons could inherit the father's estate. And he's saying something very specific by using this idea of adoption that was common in his day. That if you are adopted into Christ and into God, you receive the name of the Father. You receive the property of the Father. You move into the home that you were born to inhabit. That's what he means. He means basically that adoption to sunset sonship adopts you into a whole new world. In fact, the world as it was and now will be better, that's the world that you are longing for, and that's the beginning of re-inhabiting that world. That is being adopted into the family of God. But adoption signifies something else because orphans are essentially homeless. When you're waiting in the foster care system, you are homeless in many ways. And children who are caught in the foster care system, children who are orphans, they, they live their lives longing for that forever family that will finally come and take them home. But they, and here's where it's critical to understand what Paul is saying, is that though they are longing for that forever family to come, they can't do anything about it. There's no switch on the wall to flip so that that parent or parents walks in the door. They are totally dependent upon the goodwill of the parent who wants relationship with them. They have longings, orphans do, for wholeness that they can't meet without the intervention of a loving parent. And punk has this uniquely visceral way of reminding us that we're not home yet, that it's not just orphans who are homeless, but that the whole world is an orphanage of sorts. It has many of the comforts of home, a bed, 
place to sleep. It has food. It has a roof. It has clothing. But without a parent, it's not fully home. And Black Flag helps us to look upon our orphanage world with a sort of hermeneutic of suspicion and say, wait a minute, maybe there's more to life than this. Why am I numbing out? Why am I content? Why am I anesthetizing myself to the world? Why am I just flipping channels? The answer is deeper, friends, than I just like TV. Gaber Monte, who you've heard me probably quote here, is a medical doctor who works with addicted patients, and he writes about the addictive process. He says, in a state of spiritual poverty, we will be seduced by whatever it is that can make us insensate to our dread. We can be seduced by flipping channels to help distract us from what's really going on and the deep-seated dislocation of our soul that we can't get away from. But what then? If we use punk or black flag as the demolition tool, if we see the demolition tool that Paul has just used, that there is a longing, that there's something that really is lacking, what then? How do we move from demolition to construction? Well, in conclusion, he says in verse 21, he says, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Redemption, that term is a a buying back, redeeming a slave from bondage to purchase them into freedom. And he uses this term here to say that what God is doing in Jesus is that he is buying back groaning souls. He is making a payment for an orphaned world. And just as there is tremendous cost for a woman to give birth, and if you've done that before, you're shaking your head, even with modern medicine, there is a tremendous pain involved, there's a cost involved, there's a sacrifice of your body that is involved, there's a sacrifice or at least a giving up control over your emotions in that birthing process. And what God is saying here is that He is taking on this role of an expected mother, a parent who is willing to incur cost to bring his children into the world. And he doesn't, friends, therefore sit idly by while the world spirals and where, when our lives are so dislocated. He doesn't sit idly by and just observe our suffering but he's working. He's planning for a new birth. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. This isn't Jesus' Christmas birth. This is his resurrection, rebirth, that he's raised again to open up this whole new world, this whole new relocation of souls 
to the home that they were meant to inhabit. Being firstborn doesn't mean only that he has this special dignity, but that in his resurrection he goes before us, that he opens up a new way, opens up a new world at great cost to himself. He joins, you see, our future to his future. And resurrection completes the transaction. It makes the payment that makes redemption possible. And it tells us that the price has been accepted. The price has been paid. The new world in the sun has commenced. You see, friends, I think as we go through this series, what I want all of us to see is that our longings aren't misleading. We need them. We need even our discontent. We need our discomfort. But we are taught and told repeatedly to get out of it, to stop, that we can't stand to sit with any discomfort for more than a few moments. We've got to move on to something better. We've got to move into this next season of life or the next season of the day that's not quite so uncomfortable. We avoid discontent. We anesthetize ourselves to discomfort so we don't see. We don't see some of the things that we need to see. We miss something because these things point to something. We love stories of redemption because we were made to be redeemed. We're atrophied beings, but atrophied beings with hope. And that hope is grounded in, in the Bible is in that not only was Jesus born for you, but that he died for you and that he was resurrected for you. And now if we are children, then we are heirs. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Indeed, we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Friends, you were made for glory. You were made for eternity with God. So don't settle for anything less. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would come and inhabit these prayers, inhabit this moment. Help us to use our discontentment, use our rage, our anger, our discomfort with the way things are, to see, to see through a world that tells us that it can provide everything that we want and need if we can only achieve it, if we can only find it through our own ingenuity. God, I pray that you would help us see the lie and help us resist it taking root in our lives and our souls and in this church. I pray that you would change us, that you would help us to be more open to a world that is also atrophied and that is atrophied but people who are being changed, that we could go into the world with hope, with joy, and with news of resurrection. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.